1: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Talk Show. Today we're going to be talking about seven books that every Catholic should read. That's right. Today we're joined by
0: Brandon Vogt, and we're going to discuss seven books that every Catholic should read, some bonus entries in the list, and where you can find all of these books. And like St. John Bosco said, only God knows the good that can come about from reading one good Catholic book. Let's open it up and take a look now.
1: really excited to be back uh with you again Brandon uh nice to have you on the show um I'm looking at this list of books and and it's incredible so I'm really excited to to unpack these books for our audience hopefully uh there's some new ones there people can uh pick up that's right you know this is one of the most
0: requested episodes uh from our from our listeners they want to know hey guys what book should we read you know we're we're on YouTube you're watching us on YouTube right now thanks make sure while you're here click the like subscribe follow share do all the uh, prerequisite youtube things for us it helps us a lot but life isn't always lived on youtube and sometimes like i said with that saint john bosco quote reading a good book edifies the soul it edifies the mind uh, so we wanted to produce you know make this episode and i don't think there's anyone better that we could have gotten for this than brandon vaught uh, he's a content director for Word on Fire. He's the founder and creator of Claire Toss U, and he's one of the most well-read guys I've ever met. Whenever we've had the chance to hang out and uh, smoke a pipe together, the conversation, it's uh, its really amazing. And his knowledge of books, I think, really is going to enrich everyone today. So, Brandon, we really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing this with us.
2: Uh, thank you. A flattering introduction.
0: It's good to be here again with both of you. Thanks. Yeah. Now, you might be seeing that Father Rich is not here. Father Rich has to do some some priestly ministry today, which, uh, which are matters of life and death. So we're going to give him a pass on that. But uh, Father Rich, I'll cut you in. There you go. And uh, so, Brandon, let's get started on this list. So I, I think I want to preface this, though. What is your reading life like? How did you become so... I guess, enamored and so involved with reading and consuming information this way. Where, what's your background in that?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Growing up, I was never a big reader. Um, and then in college, I re, or excuse me, in high school, I remember completing only one book. It's pitiful to say now, um, but you know, like, we, like most of us, we were assigned all sorts of novels and books for school, but I would just skim them or barely skirt by and take a test or look up stuff online. Never really read a book cover to cover. I just wasn't a reader. Um, When I got to college, I started reading a little bit more, but it was in college that I had this really profound conversion experience. I came to know the Lord. I came to start reading the Bible for the first time on my own, uh, and then eventually came to Catholicism. And it was through that conversion that I became a more serious reader. And it's funny, I've talked to a lot of other Catholic converts who have similar stories. For some reason, it seems like a, a deeper desire for the Lord typically corresponds to a deeper hunger for reading. It's funny how those two things are are linked together. But then after that, after college, I just became became a vociferous reader. reader. I gorged on books. Um, I think I maxed out uh, a few years ago at around 110, 120 books per year. Uh, now I'm somewhere in the range of 60 to 70. Uh, we've got seven little kids and all sorts of other side projects I don't get to read as much as I as I want but usually a good 40 50 pages a day uh, is where I'm at right now so um, yeah lots of lots of experience and that's why I'm excited to talk about some of these favorite books because now that I've read thousands of books over the last couple decades um, I'm happy to talk about some of my favorites see that Ryan he's got
0: seven kids too you don't have an excuse for not reading books man <laughs> I, I, I watch movies. <laughs> See, buggy Ryan, don't sell yourself short because you're always telling me like, we'll do an episode and be like, Oh yeah, I read this book or that book. So, I mean, you've read a fair amount of books, especially in your, in your failed and defunct time in the seminary where you're forced yeah. to read. <laughs>
1: I was going to say that's, that's where I fell in love with reading. I, I have a story much like yours, Brandon, except the, uh, the amount that I consume is far less uh, currently, but yeah I fell in love with the uh, the intellectual the the philosophical tradition of the church and once I you know started reading in the seminary, that's what really kind of kickstart me into to the hunger that you uh, mentioned um you know coming into the church and desiring knowledge and just you know being able to sit with a book and it, it just impact your soul, you know uh, and that's what we're talking about here too you know is <clears throat> these are our favorite books or books that we're we're gonna discuss but There are also books that really permeate your soul, advance your knowledge, um, and really just provide grace, uh, a lot of grace, you know, to the reader.
0: Yeah, so I'll make sure that there's a list below in the show notes on this page on YouTube. But then also, if you go to catholictalkshow.com, on this episode's page, you'll have all the links that we mentioned in this episode. uh, So make sure you go there and check it out so you can find where to get these books yourself. So Brandon, um, why don't you give us your first book um, on this list of seven?
2: Sure, and let me preface this by saying uh, our prompt was seven books that every Catholic should read. And so we're going to presume books like the Bible or the Catechism or, you know, documents of the church, that those are kind of somewhere in your steady diet of reading. So these are books beyond those. Um, but I had a really difficult time trying to lock down seven. I think my initial list was 40 or 50. And I whittled it down to 20, then 10, and then really squeezed hard to get it down to seven. What I tried to do was create a really representative list of time periods, genres, authors, styles, accessibility. Um, so I hope this is a, a pretty broad representative range of some of the best books of all time that Catholics should read. So the very first one is uh, this little book. It's titled Early Christian Writings. Um, There's dozens and dozens of editions of this. This one is by Penguin Classics, um, great little cheap edition. But what it contains is the writings of the apostolic fathers. So these are a subset of the church fathers. So if you've never read the church fathers, these are the earliest of the church fathers. The men that are writing in this book are people that lived either at the same time as the apostles or in the next generation after them. Um, So some of these writings from people like uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch or St. Clement, um, Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp sat at the feet of the apostle John. You know, Ignatius and Clement were some of the earliest bishops in the church. They're writing in the late first century. So right at the same time the gospels are written. And then um, my favorite document in this whole book is the Didache. The Didache, it's, it's the oldest Christian document that's not in the Bible, that's not in the New Testament. And it reads kind of like uh, another letter of Paul or another uh, kind of like Acts. It's a description of how the early church lived and worshiped and practiced. The reason that I recommend this book and why I think every Catholic should read it is it affirms how deeply Catholic the early church was. So in this book, you're going to see references to bishops and the Eucharist and other sacraments. You're going to um, see what the mystical body of Christ looks like in action. You're going to see things like uh, the necessity of baptism for regeneration. So this this book explains why so many Protestants, when they read the church fathers, end up becoming Catholic um, because right. it's really hard to reconcile what you find in this book with, say, modern Protestantism. You read this book and you say, wow, those guys look a whole lot more like Catholics today than, than they do Protestants. And if that's the case, well, you know, it puts us in a bind because this is the early church. This is what the early followers of Jesus did and how they prayed and what they believed. So um, that's that's the first book I'd recommend is the, the early tr- Christian writings or the writings of the church fathers. Yeah, that that's a good testament
0: to the, you know, there's the four marks of the church, and it's a good testament to the apostolic mark of the church. And, and like you said, the, the Didache almost serves as like a first catechism. I mean, it's the it's a very primal catechism, but it's very much like that. Um, and like uh, Newman said, you know, to become steeped in history is to cease become, being Protestant. And these books, for me, <clears throat> so in my reversion, you know, I was a middling Catholic, grew up Catholic, never really was not Catholic, but you know like everyone else between 16 and 24 you're just you know drinking and smoking and partying doing whatever you want to do but then you know you get a little older you have a kid you start taking things more seriously and this document was one of the very first ones that i read that led to my reversion because i said okay it's time to take things a little bit more seriously now okay well you know you could read documents from the last hundred years but i'm like you know my mind goes back to the source and then i saw this book and it was a. Uh, Polycarp, Irenaeus Clement, St. Justin Martyr, which he's kind of on the fringe of those apostolic fathers, but uh, I grew up in a parish called St. Justin Martyr, so I read him too. Uh, It really affirmed for me the historicity of the church. It really affirmed to me that, look, the church is incredibly, incredibly Catholic from the beginning. And then when you look at these maybe Protestant movements who are saying, well, we're kind of fundamentalists, we're going back to what the early church believed. This is what the early church believed, and it is you know, look, it couldn't be any more Catholic if you put a Pope's miter on it and a, a statue of Mary behind it. I mean, so great recommendation. Uh, couldn't recommend that one enough. So thanks for putting that one on the list, Brandon.
1: Yeah. And I would also add that some of these documents um, could have been up for the canon of scripture too, as well. Yes. Um, and <clears throat> when you look at divine revelation, uh, and how these books were chosen, you have this, you have this revelation with the apostles and then it, and then it goes into the apostles ministering to, uh, uh, folks who then begin to become, uh, bishops and things like that. And so there's a, there's a, a categorization of revelation within that, that really, uh, earmarks the fact that, that this was a time that we need to pay great attention to, Right. Um, And and the church did too, as well, when they were choosing scripture.
0: Mm -hmm. It's almost like, like Brandon, like you said, it's like a sequel to the Acts of the Apostles. It's like the new trilogy, right? It's not the original cast, but it's the same, it's the same franchise. And it's very much like that, you know? That's right. But better, better than the new Star Wars trilogy. (laughs) Uh, uh, Brandon, don't, don't get me started. Although, Brandon, I'm sure you're
2: waiting with bated breath what Amazon's going to do with uh, the Lord of the Rings oh, and Tolkien's work. Bait, I'm sure that bated breath is certain. I I think I heard <laughs> it described as like in the spirit of Middle Earth. I'm like, oh, gosh, that's oh, code no. word for just bad. <laughs> I love that. There, I love that there's
0: online campaigns of young men saying we do not want nudity in this. We don't yeah, need nudity an in it- Tolkien's work. It's a really cool thing that to see young men who are even secular, who are saying,
2: keep your clothes on. Let's just, let's just let this stand yeah. on its own. It's pretty cool. Isn't that an interesting phenomenon is like after the game of Thrones era, so many shows have followed that model, you know, to a T mm-hmm. of just a lot of gratuitous violence and a lot of gratuitous nudity and sexuality. And yet Lord of the Rings, which we'll, we'll get to in a minute cause it's on my list of books sure. here, but it's, it stands alone as one of the great modern epics that has been uh, put to film but avoids all of those things, gratuitous violence, nudity, and sexuality, and yet flourished. Mm-hmm. And so it remains, in my mind, a, a pattern that's untapped by Hollywood. There's clearly a hunger for those types of movies. So we'll see what the new Amazon show looks like. well let's 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 pray for that one. So let's get on to book number two of your list, Brandon. Book number two is a classic. It is Augustine's Confessions, Augustine's Confessions. This book has been, you know, it's it's hard to find another book, perhaps, that has influenced Western civilization more than this one because it's the first autobiography. It's the first real introspective psychological uh, memoir of of a person undergoing a deep conversion of soul. That's really what this is. It's a story of conversion. Um, if you haven't read the Confessions, I would say, rush to get it. it's It's probably the one Catholic book that you have to read before you die. Um, there's many English translations of the Confessions, lots of good ones. Uh, Maria Bolding, uh, who is a Benedicting uh, Benedicting nun, I think um, she has a really good one that's published by Ignatius Press. But this is my favorite translation of the of the Confessions. It's by Frank Sheed. Frank Sheed. We'll talk about him a little bit later because I have another book by Frank Sheed. Um, but I've never re- I've read Confessions now in I think three or four different translations, and this one Is by far the best. Um, uh, Peter Kraft has this great line about um, the Confessions. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Uh, Translation. Yeah, okay. Peter Kraft is uh, comparing the different translations of Confessions, and he says, Only once have I encountered a translation that made such a difference, that so opened up for me a previously closed book. And that was Frank Sheed's translation of Augustine's Confessions, which I found, he says, to be as living as molten lava. The most widely used translation of the Confessions is by a scholar named Mr. Pine Coffin. And Peter Crave says, it is worthy of the name. It's a dead translation. Uh, but, <laughs> That's but, a slam she dunk. Said she, yeah, <laughs> a, quite a zinger. But he says, yeah. sheeds is living. I love that. It's like molten lava. The thing about um, the Confessions is it's so lyrical and poetic in the original Latin. Now, I don't know Latin, so I couldn't read it. Um, but what I've heard is it's difficult to convey that lyricism in, yeah. to English while still maintaining the original meaning. I think she has gotten the closest to that. So this translation is both beautiful, profound, and it stays true to Augustine's meaning. So uh, Frank Sheed, translation of Augustine's Confessions. We also have it in this beautiful Word on Fire Classics Edition, which has a a ribbon bookmark. Um, So whatever you want to get, paperback or hardcover, get the Frank Sheed translation of it.
0: Well, I have one here that I'm cheating. I have this on, on, on audio. I think it's, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I've ever listened to it. Someone gave it to me. I don't think I even own a CD player anymore, but.
2: <laughs> what, no, what, what translation the, is that one? This is the uh, Edward Pussy. Okay. It's another famous one. I think that's from the 1800s. Yeah. It, it's, uh, I love that they ta-
0: they even call him St. Aurelius Augustinus, right? Kind of <laughs> giving the a lot proper of,
1: name. A, a lot of people quote that book. Uh, well, you, you'll see. um our hearts are restless until they rest in you like a lot of people mm-hmm. cite that um, and or you know say that but they don't cite the book <laughs>
2: right <laughs> well it's funny that that line is literally on page i think 1 or page 2 of the confession yeah. so if you like that line keep going keep That's going because right. there's a whole lot more from there <laughs> keep going
0: <laughs> you know one of the things i like about the confessions is it's very much to me in the tradition of the great Roman orators, you know, like uh, Seneca or Cicero, uh, right? And I think a lot of his his style, like you said, in the original Latin, really is that kind of uh, intentionally beautiful, intentionally persuasive type writing. And you can get a mind into how the classical world turns into the Christian era. And his conversion of heart that he's relaying very much is, I think, an archetype of the conversion of heart that the entire Western world was having at the same time. Now, his is the most famous example, but these little bursts of, of you know, of hearts on fire are happening all around the world, known world at the time. And this gives you an insight into how the, let's say, ancient to classical or late classical mind is viewing this kind of wrestling with this old world that's dying and this new world that's giving so much more than the old word, old world did really interesting insight. Even if you look at it from, even if you're an atheist, you know, looking at an autobiography from someone from, you know, fourth century, it's, it's a really fascinating document. So again, great pick Brandon.
2: Yeah. Like you say, he in his very person embodies this shift from the classical world to the Christian world. You know, he was trained, as a a classical rhetorician. That's what he envisioned himself becoming, but he eventually came to see the emptiness of rhetoric, especially among the sophists where, you know, you could argue for either of two conflicting positions. And as long as you were so elegant and persuasive that you you could trick people into believing one or the other, he got tired of that and just wanted the truth. I want the truth. He hungered and burned for the truth. And that led him to God. But you see that whole journey throughout this beautiful account. And like you say, it's a microcosm of what was happening in the greater world at large.
0: Mm -hmm. And again, this book, I mean, it talks about his conversion story. I mean, it gets a little nitty gritty. I mean, St. Augustine was, you know, he was like me and Delacrosse. He was probably up to no good. I mean, he had kids out of wedlock. He talks about Stealing, He talks about just really kind of the depravity that he was in, where he was really a person of the time um, of that culture and place and how his conversion really led him to, you know, turn from all that. It's it's something that's both ancient, I I guess, and modern. It's one of his quotes, ever ancient, ever new. Ever ancient, ever new. It's how he describes God. That's right. But his story is the same way. And I think that's an amazing thing.
1: Yeah, when I read it the first time, again in the seminary, I was just blown away at how this man, centuries and centuries and centuries ago, you know, poured himself out to his passions, um, became empty, uh, and, and was filled up uh, by our Lord and the truth. Um, and it, it, it happens to, to to people today. You know, it, it's a it's just such a bare um, account. A true account of this man's soul. And it's so well written, that I think most people can relate to that, even if they didn't have such a, you know, you know, monumental shift, you know, that that he had, you know.
2: Awesome. All right, so let's get on to book number three here, Brandon. All right, book three, we are going to journey from the patristic period of, or the church fathers. So that was the first two books here, all the way to the medieval period to take us to Thomas Aquinas. Now, I love Thomas Aquinas. He's one of my favorite saints. I identify as a Thomist, a follower of Thomas Aquinas, or you know, maybe to use Ralph McInerney's language, a peeping Thomist, a novice yeah, Thomist. That's good. Um, I thought about stealing, recommending <laughs> I thought about recommending something by Thomas Aquinas, but he is admittedly difficult for first timers. If you've never read anything by Thomas Aquinas, I really would not recommend just diving into the Summa Theologia, his masterwork and starting on page one, you're going to be lost really quickly. Um, so I think the best way to get into Thomas Aquinas is through one of his great interpreters. And in in, in my view, the best contemporary interpreter of Aquinas for, for ordinary lay people is Peter Kraft. And this book is one of Peter Crepe's gems. It's titled Summa of the Summa, Summa of the Summa. So summary of the summary um, by Thomas Aquinas. And what he does is he goes through Thomas Aquinas's masterwork, takes short chunks of passages, and then gives you a bunch of commentary. Now, uh, one reason that's helpful is because Thomas does use a lot of jargon. He uses a lot of philosophical terms that fellow scholastic philosophers and theologians of his day would have known, but that are foreign to us today. So you need to understand what those terms are, and Peter Kreeft helps you. But also Kreeft provides lots and lots of colorful examples and analogies that help to clarify what exactly Thomas Aquinas is getting at. So um, this, I think, is the best entry point to Thomas Aquinas. Again, Summa of the Summa by Peter Kreeft.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Aquinas can, he writes in a very technical format. It's a very scholastic format. It's uh, you know, he poses a question, he poses the, the counters, he answers that. Well, I counter. So it it very much is a a formulaic writing. It's um, you know,
1: something that if you're not, wasn't it a format of debate back then? Was it, is that how he was presenting that information was a a specific format that that when they got together and debated that they used was that is is that correct
2: yeah yeah it was known as the disputatio or the disputed questions and it was a common format i wish we could bring it back um yeah we have such a lack of civil rational discourse today and especially debate especially between two people who vigorously disagree about a topic Um, But if you look in the medieval period, that was extremely common. And those debates were really fruitful because they knew how to frame an intellectual disagreement. Um, One of the things Thomas is best known for, and this comes out really well in Peter Crave's book, is how Thomas steelmans, if we want to use a contemporary term, steelmans his opponent's position. He makes it as strong as possible. Most of us, you know, when we're refuting somebody else's view will straw man their position will make it seem as stupid and as silly yeah. and as misrepresented as possible it's all the easier to knock it down right but thomas presents his opponent's positions as strongly as possible sometimes it, it's people famously say he sometimes puts the opponent's positions better than the opponents themselves put it so he makes it even stronger than they could but then he slowly and methodically unravels it and shows where the errors lie within it. Um, that format is is masterful because it it affirms the intellectual integrity of the writer or the arguer, and it gives you an extra boat boost of confidence in what they're doing. Um, if they if they are willing to take seriously the other person's argument, you trust them more. you can you can have, a greater faith in following them. Um, so I, I wish we could get back to that style today. Absolutely. Yeah, let's and let's not I mean, forget I,
1: Peter Kreeft.
2: I, I right. said, let's That's not forget Peter
1: Kreeft. I mean, like yes. this guy is uh, one of the most amazing philosophers of our time um, and just so readable uh, at the same time and and draws you into deep truths with, with uh, really simple writing. Um, he can get dense in, in certain cases uh, but but I w- I couldn't think of a better person to take
2: you through the Summa than him, you know? Yeah, he's a master at that. Um, many people have described him as our generation's C.S. Lewis. Yeah. I think that's a well-deserved title. It's a rare skill for someone to stand on the bridge between a great master of thought and the ordinary layperson and bridge that gap. But Peter... Peter does it so well, and he's done it not just for Thomas Aquinas, but for many other writers and sources. He has books on Augustine and Plato and Socrates and uh, Blaise Pascal, and that's kind of his, his forte, is taking these lofty intellects and bringing them down to the level of the rest of us. Yeah, so that
0: people who may not otherwise access it ever or are intimidated about getting started, they have a place where they can go to, you know, Peter Craig is a he's, a he's an educator and he's allowing people to enter into this world slowly. So either some people would never read this. Some right. people may only read his, some people may read his and then be inspired to go deeper. But like you said, it's that bridge that allows access to these things. Um, yeah. Great thing. Cause I mean, who's going to read the whole Summa? I mean, very few <laughs> people, but to know the key points and to know some of these, you know, the real highlights and have them explained to you, is really um, uh, you know, irreplaceable. So
2: another great pick, Brandon. Uh, what's number four? All right. Number four is taking us forward <clears throat> a few centuries. So we're going to come all the way up to the 20th century now. And this book is my favorite nonfiction book of all time. And it is Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. I'm holding up here the the Word on Fire edition, which I helped to publish, of uh, Chesterton's Orthodoxy. Now, this one, of course, was written in English, so no translation needed. Orthodoxy is hard to capture in a few sentences. Um, It was written in 1908 by Chesterton before Chesterton converted to Catholicism. So at this time, Chesterton was kind of vaguely Anglican. Um, He was starting to come back around to uh, a more traditional Christian belief system, uh, but he wrote this book as a response to the increasing ideologies of his day, specifically nihilism, so the belief that nothing matters. You know, we should all just despair. Uh, determinism, that we don't have free will; that everything is kind of just running automatically based on you know deterministic principles. Um, pessimism uh, related to nihilism, and then uh, atheism, agnosticism—the belief that there's no god. All of those ideologies he was recognizing were ascendant in the Western culture at the time, while Christianity was kind of descending and Christianity was catching a lot of flack from critics who were arguing that the time of doctrine and dogma is past. Those things are old, they're stuffy, they're retrograde. We've now been liberated to get rid of the shackles of religion and move on into this great you know, progressive future at that time, you know, this is 1908, so not too much uh, after uh, Darwin's discoveries. And so there was a lot of emphasis on human evolution and human progress, not just in the biological sense, but in the social sense that we're, we're moving forward into a glorious new era, one that religion has nothing to say. Well, Chesterton put his foot down and wrote this book in response to all of that. The basic premise is that orthodoxy is not something dull and drab and retrograde, but instead is exciting and adventurous. In fact, I think he says something to the effect of, like, orthodoxy is the last adventure left. There's nothing terribly exciting about moral rebellion. There's nothing exciting about the things we talked about earlier, Ryan, like drinking, smoking, partying, out-of-wedlock sex. Everyone's doing that. that. That's drab. That's banal today. There's nothing truly invigorating and exciting and rebellious about that. Rebellion is religion. That's the last rebellion left. And so this book uh, makes that whole case. But what you'll notice when you open the first page is his writing. His writing is so unique in the Christian tradition because it's so witty and effervescent and sparkling um, I've heard it described as it, reading Chesterton is like opening a bottle of champagne. It just bubbles out. and and also, to stick with that analogy, you you can't drink too much at one time. So Chesterton's not the type of writer where you just plow through and read a whole book in one sitting. You read a couple pages at a time. There's just too much to take in uh, the the quality of his writing, the depth of his arguments. But, in my view, the best Christian book written in the last two hundred years, my favorite nonfiction book of all time, Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. Let me let me mention one little twist here. Uh, this is another book that was recently produced called Orthodoxy, an American translation. American translation. It's by Dale Alquist, Peter Northcutt, and Kevin O'Brien. Now, you might wonder, I thought Orthodoxy was written in English, so why do we need an American translation? Well, Orthodoxy was written in England English, and they've updated it to American English. In the original version, there's a lot of turns of phrases that don't make sense to contemporary Americans, but also he references a lot of, uh, in his day, contemporary people, politicians, locations in England that wouldn't make sense to us. So a lot of those have been replaced with American people or politicians Mm -hmm. or places. Um, So if you find the original orthodoxy a little too impenetrable, maybe check out this American translation of orthodoxy. Yeah, Dale Elquist is the president of the Chesterton Society, correct? Correct. And, and so, probably the, the leading Chesterton guru in the world.
0: Yeah. Mm. So he knows his stuff. And, and Brandon, I'll echo what you said. This is my favorite uh, Christian book. Uh, you know, Oh, this, I didn't know that, Ryan. I absolutely love this book. My copy of it looks like uh, it got shot with a paintball gun because of all the little areas that I've highlighted and, and circled. And, and you're so right about how you read this book. Now I jumped into it and I read, you know, three or four chapters in the first night and then I'm like, I'm going to go back. What was that little thing? Cause there's all these little, the the nuance is so beautiful. And I I've heard him called the apostle of paradoxes and I love his yeah. little paradoxical statements. I love these beautifully spun arguments. They're so common. They're so witty. I mean, this guy, uh, the way he writes, I think is unique from anyone I've ever read. I don't think I've ever read anyone as witty as, clear-minded, but also entertaining to read. I mean, look, for all of our atheists out there, and I know you're out there, we talk, you send us all the stuff, and I know that you're, you know, you're sniffing around a little bit um, like uh, like Herod, and you, you, you watch our show. Guys, girls, read this book. Even if you can't stand Christian theology, read this book, because this guy is so entertaining, and you'll be able to understand, again, maybe create that steel man argument of what we actually believe and how we believe it so that you can better counter us. I couldn't recommend this book enough for Catholics. I couldn't recommend it enough for people considering converting like Chesterton was at the time, because that's his mind frame. But then also for people who counter us, this is a good accessible way to understand what we think, how we feel and why things are important that you think are frivolous or trivial or untrue. Could not recommend this book enough. Uh, Chesterton, that's my guy right there, you know? Yeah, that's, that's cool great too. All right, let's see what you it know, says. The riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of man. And like I said, it.
2: he's the apostle of paradoxes, and that so sums up his thought patterns. It's funny, when he wrote this book in 1908, again, he didn't convert to Catholicism I believe till 1922. So 14 years later, but he published this book. It made a huge splash all across Europe. It was immediately a bestseller. One of the most popular books. He began receiving letters in the mail from people congratulating him on becoming Catholic uh, because they read the book and just assumed it was so deeply Catholic that he, this must be like his conversion memoir. Um, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't, it wasn't. In fact, what he says in the, in the earliest chapter was, um, what this book really is a result of is not making the case for Catholicism, but him setting out to create his own religion. He said, I was so dissatisfied with all of these empty ideologies that I started to to piece together my own belief system, my own religion. So I'm grabbing this doctrine, this dogma, this belief, this tradition. And he said, I just put the finishing touches on it. When I, I came to discover that this was actually ancient Christianity (laughs) that I had just recreated this thing that existed for 2000 years and it careened across the centuries. Um, So I love it. There's, there's something on every page to take delight in. Yep. Well, congratulations, Chesterton. You played yourself,
0: tried to write a book (laughs) and and you got yourself by yourself. He converted himself. That's a, that's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, Again, uh, now Chesterton has a lot of great books. Um, His uh, St. Francis of Assisi is great um everlasting man everlasting man is amazing there's so many things by chester or even look the, the father brown books are terribly entertaining i think uh, they even yeah. do a pbs show which is pretty good too um so yeah check out yeah, father brown it's a, you know he's a he's a priest detective it's like a murder she wrote but with a priest
2: <laughs> yeah i love the father brown stories are really unique it's 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 often said that father brown is the second best known Detective figure in England after Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. and they, they kind of were coming of, of popularity around the same time, but what's unique about father Brown is he's a priest who is able to discover crimes. Because of his decades of experience in the confessional so he uses knowledge he's learned about human psychology and depravity by hearing the confessions of several criminals to then solve crimes. And Chesterton says it it actually came about because of a real encounter he had. He was at a party one day with uh, a priest friend of his father, John O'Connor. That's who the Father Brown is based off of. And there was a couple of young college students there and they were laughing and joking with Father O'Connor. Father O'Connor walked away. And then the the two college kids came up to Chesterton and said, "Uh, you know, what a delightful old man, you know, such a simple and innocent heart, you know but uh, it's just a shame that he doesn't know more about the world. And Chesterton kind of smirked and and that was the seed planted for the Father Brown stories where he wanted to make the case that, no, 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 a a priest knows way more about the world than you. You know, Mm -hmm. a priest knows way more about the married life than married people, not because he himself has been married, but he's spent hundreds of hours with married couples experiencing their highs and their lows and in the confessional and spiritual direction. He's got a keener sense of the human heart than you. Uh, So that's the whole premise behind the Father Brown stories. Yeah, you heal that argument a lot. Well, what can a priest tell me about
0: marriage? He's never been married. What can a right. priest tell me about, you know, sexual morality? He's, uh, you know, uh, celibate. Well, I don't know. What can an oncologist tell you about cancer if he's never had cancer? Right. What can a, right. uh, you know, what can an astrophysicist teach you about particles when he himself has never shrunk down to the size of a particle? And there's an expertise that does not always have to be direct experiential. There's there's a scholasticism right. that is under valued in today's world so yeah chesterton love 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 chesterton so accessible so interesting to read it's just entertaining but it's so good every page you'll say wow dude that's a great line and it just keeps happening time and time again you know uh so, so my, go fav- check my that favorite out. line
2: in there is about the um tradition he defines tradition as the democracy of the dead and he says in our day whenever we have a vote, we're voting, you know, a politician into office, we don't uh, uh, discriminate based on where someone is born. You know, we, we give everybody within that particular region, one vote. And he says, in the case of history, then why should we discriminate based on when someone was born? That if you allow a vote to every person who has lived throughout history, what you'll get is an almost universal consensus that religion is good and true and beautiful. It's only in the very, very recent sliver of time that a handful of people, relatively speaking, have voted against religion. And so he's a great proponent of tradition, which he links to democracy. Those two things are often put at odds, but he says, no, tradition's the ultimate democracy because it's given a vote, not just to those who are alive, but to our fathers and grandfathers and great grandfathers as well. And all of them, at least in the last 2,000 years, are casting a vote decisively for christian tradition love it all right so brandon i the
0: next book on your list i know that you're (laughs) you're about to go off on us and i can even see in the background i I think i can see some characters running around on the map on your background why don't you tell us what this
2: book is all right this this book is objectively not my personal opinion objectively the best book ever (laughs) written uh so this is lord of the rings by J.R.R. tolkien very important to observe this is one book this is not a It's often described as a trilogy, you know, colloquially, but one book, it was always intended to be one book, Um, massive novel. I think this, this volume is like 1200 pages long, Um, but it's written by the great J.R.R. Tolkien. Now what's, why I included this book on this list besides just its inherent quality and beauty is because it is, I think the quintessentially Catholic novel A lot of people who've read Lord of the Rings, especially if they've read it early on in their life when they were children, may not realize that this book was intended to be a Catholic book, explicitly so by its author. Um, Tolkien said in a letter that um, it was unconsciously Catholic at first, but consciously so in the revision. So he intended that the Catholic ethos breathe throughout every page of this book. Now, it's confusing because you think, well, where's God, where's church, where's prayer, where's the sacraments. None of those things are explicitly in Lord of the Rings. Um, but they're allegorized everywhere They're They appear everywhere. Um, I, I can't get into all the details about the Christian symbolism of Lord of the Rings. That'll be a discussion for another day. Uh, but if you haven't read this book, I, it's hard It's hard to capture the beauty and the glory of this story. I have a, a quote here from C.S. Lewis, um, who of course was Tolkien's close friend. C.S. Lewis reviewed um, the first volume of Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, when it came out. And here's what he said. I think this, this best explains uh, the value of this book. He says, this book is like lightning from a clear sky. A reviewer needs say little except that here are beauties which pierce like swords or burn like cold iron. Here is a book that will break your heart. They will know that this is good news, good beyond hope. To complete their happiness, one need only add that it promises to be gloriously long. Um, He says, as we find ourselves sharing their burden, the character's burden, then when we have finished, we return to our own life, not relaxed, but fortified and i think if you talk to anybody who's who's trudged their way through the entire 1200 page of the book they'll say that it's one of those rare books that changes reality around you you're you're not the same for having read this book you have developed more virtue more edification and fortification the the world around you becomes enchanted in a new way it's not escapism into middle earth where this story takes place but It's it's shaping and affecting your world, the world around you. So, I could I could celebrate the merits of Lord of the Rings for hours and hours and hours, but maybe I'll stop there and let you guys talk. Brandon, I've got a confession of my own. I've watched
0: the movies, love the movies. They're good representation. I have not read through the book myself because I get to come. It was really great being with you guys today. Um, Right. Looking forward to maybe coming back later. I get the Tom Bombadil and I, I I have to stop. I I, I cannot handle Tom Bombadil. That for me was a deal breaker. I got to that. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go take a nap or I'm going to go take a walk or something. And then I just didn't get back to it because that that was a buzzkill for me.
2: Yeah, um, I, you know, a lot of people I've heard, they, they get through about 50, 100, 150 pages and kind of come to a halt. And I get it. It's a slow starter. You know, what yeah. Tolkien is doing is painting the background of this whole world. He he was the original world builder. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear that a lot now in modern fiction, fantasy fiction about, oh, he's a great world builder. We just had Dune in the movies and now Wheel of Time coming out and- or the all Marvel of these,
0: universe or whatever. Marvel yeah.
2: universe, Game of Thrones, you know, they're, they're all celebrated for how they build out, not just, uh, you know, a storyline, but a world with characters and histories and languages and all that. Tolkien was the original. he's doing that in the very beginning of lord of the rings and it takes him a long time because he's he doesn't just jump right into the action so you get about 90 pages in the beginning all about bilbo's birthday party (laughs) so it takes it takes like i think over 100 pages before they even leave the shire their home to go on to this grand adventure you know many books are halfway done by 100 pages but they haven't even started and -hmm. then you get to tom bombadil bombadil (laughs) Uh didn't appear in the movies. So if you've seen the movies but haven't read the books, you know Jackson chose wisely. He's 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 emblematic of pre-fallen man. So he's he's man without sin. And so he's this kind of evervescent, bumbly, bubbly, vivacious character that leaps and sings and whistles, and he's kind of a strange person, but he he floats above all the action that's happening in Middle Earth. He's not tempted. By the great ring it's it's nothing to him um because again he doesn't have concupiscence he's not he's not fallen he's he's a kind of an aberration in middle earth mm-hmm. he, he's
1: like ned flanders
2: <laughs> <laughs> but a good like a good holy ned flanders not just an obnoxious annoying ned flanders <laughs> you know i was uh, i was i
1: just my wife and i on our anniversary uh the last couple of years we got to see the great divorce the play the great divorce um, yeah. And then C.S. Lewis's biography. Uh, if this were my list, C.S. Lewis would be on here. But what I would, what I would, you know, I'm hearing you talk about how he's the original world builder, and I think about the influence that he had on C.S. Lewis to push yeah. him into creating some of the worlds that I so dearly am fond of. Um, Narnia, you know, which is great,
0: what's you know, that, Brandon? Narnia, Brandon, which I think is a more enjoyable read. The Lord of the if Rings. you want to go, if I, I you want to go world
1: it. if you want to go world builder, short, sweet, beautiful, just mind-boggling, it's the Great Divorce. It's yeah. 80. Love that book. A hundred pieces. Um, and it's magnificent. I mean, it's just a magnificent illustration of the human soul and the denial of God in so many different ways and the world that He creates, it's very cohesive, <laughs> but yet it separates through, you know, the, the characters and I mean, just a, a wonderful thing. And so when you were mentioning the original world builder, I thought to myself, you know, that, that pub that Chesterton and and yeah, Tolkien and, and, and C.S. Pub. Lewis sat in and how much he had an impact on C.S. Lewis's um, world building,
0: if you would. One, one thing that I really have always, I really, I, I, I like Lord of the Rings. I've, I, I tease Brandon about it when we talk because, uh, cause I haven't read it like I should, but I've seen the movies, but, and I've read through parts of all of the books, but what I really do like, and I know this is, you know, scholars say this was not his intention, but the parallels drawn between middle earth and Europe in world war one. I, um, I think, you know, well, token, he was in world war one, he fought in it and seeing yeah. the alliances, seeing where alliances break down, seeing the desire of man. I mean, it's, you know, the great powers to the East It's written very much, you know, France and England versus, you know, uh, if you're looking at, you know, the imperial German uh, army, if you're looking at Turkish, you can kind of see these parallels Mm -hmm. that he's drawing. And now scholars would say that's not his intention, but I think it was unavoidable for him because of what he saw in the war and just how people truly react in these combat situations. I don't think you could have written this book without having that firsthand experience and that valor, that heartbreak. That that real earthy grittiness of having been in a trench and having rain in your boots and smelling a dead body. I I think that's one of the things that makes this book and the whole world so very interesting and real, but also immediate and also believable and also a real parallel. Even though it's a, a mythic and fantastical world, the motivations are very true to what we see in the world, especially
2: at the time. Yeah, all that's true. All that's true. You know, Tolkien was very adamant that Lord of the Rings is not allegorical; that it did not. Uh, he he got the um uh the question of of whether um the orcs and Saruman and Sauron represented you know the Prussians or the Germans or and he w- he would shut down those suggestions immediately. But but to your point, I can't help but think that subconsciously a lot of that shaped him. Um, you see, for example. Um, Saruman, who raises this tremendous army of of orcs, these kind of deformed elvish creatures, uh, his army is fueled almost completely by this vast machinery. It's a very industrial army. They're yeah. knocking down forests to build these machines with gears, and and for Tolkien, that was everything that was wrong with World War One. Is like World War One was the first time we got away. From this face-to-face, human-to-human combat with you know either knives or guns or something where you're looking into the eyes of your enemy. Now instead we're introducing you know tanks and big machines and and even eventually the next war aerial strikes. You know uh, he he hated that and he was so resistant to it. I think that's why the evil characters in his book fight in that way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh,
0: again, if you've only read the books, Brandon, I, I'll I'll make a deal with you. I'm going to try to get through it. I'm going to try to read it on Christmas break coming up here. I'm going to try. I know I should. I really know I should. And I've already gotten through Bilbo's Party and and Tom Bombadil. I'll I'll pick it back up. I'll I'll let you know, Brandon. I'll let you know if it really does transform me.
2: It will be very difficult for St. Peter to let you into the pearly gates if if you have not read that. (laughs) All right. All right. I'll just encourage it.
0: uh, I'll I'll appeal to (laughs) Aslan and Narnia and see if there's a back door open. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's get on to uh, number five on this list.
2: I'm sorry, number six. Number six. Yeah, number six. We're almost near the end. So this is my favorite spiritual book. It's titled To Know Christ Jesus by Frank Sheed. So I mentioned Sheed earlier as the translator of confession. Sheed was a part of this whole English Catholic revival in the early 20th century. He was very close with um, people like G.K. Chesterton. In fact, he ran a publishing house called Sheed and Ward, uh, where they published a lot of Chesterton's books. And in fact, if if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure this is the case. Um, one of Frank Sheed's children is godson to G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton's their godfather, so he was close family friends with the Chestertons and, and others. Uh, but this book is the best book I've ever read on the person of Jesus Christ. Um, it's up there, and I would say slightly above, this might be heretical to some of our viewers, but up there and slightly above uh, Pope Benedict's Jesus of Nazareth trilogy, in my mind. Here's why, here's why. This book doesn't only communicate facts about Jesus, and it doesn't only reflect on the theology of, of Christ, as Pope Benedict does heavily in his books. It's all about helping you to develop a personal closeness and fondness to Jesus. He goes through almost as, a, an, a, as an Ignatian exercise of, of going through the scenes in Jesus's life and asking questions you may not have thought about this or that scene uh, to the point where you, you feel, again, a closeness and intimacy to the characters into the scene, but uh, most especially to Christ. It's hard to, it's hard to capture what this book will do to your soul by the time you finish it. It's not just at the level of feeling like you'll close this book and you'll say, I feel closer to Christ. But it's not just that your soul is more united to Christ as a result of going through this book. So I try to go through this book every Lent. I've read it, I don't know, six, seven, eight times now. Um, it, That's a great period to read it. Advent is also another one. But if you're looking for a new book on Christ, maybe you've already Done Pope Benedict's books or Fulton Sheen's great book, Life of Christ. Um, check this one out because it's it's my favorite spiritual book I return to again and again. Awesome.
0: So yeah, now before we get into the last book on your list, Brandon, I want to do some honorable mentions, right? Some ones that I think um once you get through this list of seven, you might want to look at as well. Uh, true devotion to Mary by Saint Louis de Montfort. St. Louis de Montfort yep. is in a um, he is a he is a rose scent of a writer. His writing is so floral and so beautiful and so devoted to Mary. We really, should take a look at that
2: uh, story of a soul, Saint Therese. You it's know who a you know who loved that book, by the way, John Paul II. He would say really? regularly, "It's his favorite book." He kept it on his bedside, even as Pope. Um, he went through it multiple times. In fact, his papal motto "Totus Tuus" comes from that book. So, if you if you want a book favored by a saintly Pope. That's the one and you can't go wrong with it.
1: I would also add that the consecration to Jesus through Mary that St. Louis de Montfort, um, you know, uh, positioned in our faith has been uh, a game changer for myself. You know, Mm. as far as discernment, vocation, if you really are kind of struggling with what God wants from you, that is like, it is the quintessential uh prayer and it has changed a lot of people's lives it's a um a beautiful thing and this is a one of the requirements is to read this book nice mm-hmm. uh story of a soul st teresa of Lisieux.
0: i mean she is a spiritual master uh you know it's it's the writings of a i a good way to describe how powerful it is is that st teresa is the patrons patroness of missionary work, and she never left her little mm-hmm. monastery, and she never left her little yeah. convent. And that's how kind of uh, expansive and how yearning her soul can be and how far just your thought and
2: your interior disposition can take you. Uh, Brandon, and you mentioned... I will say if I can add Brandon. one little comment about that one. Um, I've read Story of a Soul now a few times, and it's I've detected a pattern among many people I know who have read it. The first time you read it, you might find it a little too flowery and sentimental, but it's when you come back the second time and read it that you'll enjoy it. Um, Dorothy Day, one of my great heroes, uh, she wrote a whole biography on St. Therese, and she says in that book, uh, when I first read Story of a Soul uh, a year after my baptism, she was like a new Christian, "Uh, I found it colorless, monotonous, too small, in fact, for my notice. Um, I dismissed the book as pious pep, Um, However, 20 years later, 20 years after the first read, she underwent a complete reversal of attitude. She said, in in these days of fear and trembling of of what man has wrought on earth and destructiveness and hate, Therese is the saint we need. Um, And over the following year, she recommended Story of the Soul more than any other book. So I just want to add that warning to people. The first time you read it might not be too grabby, but give it another chance. Let it sit with you and maybe return to it again. Now, now, you mentioned this one. This one was incredibly important in my reversion.
0: That's uh, Jesus of Nazareth, Pope Benedict. Uh, the way that he is able to, he's very much like you said, Dr. Kreft, in this manner that he could take his mind, which is, I think, one of the most unparalleled and amazing minds of the last who knows how many years. Should be but a doctor how he of the can, church.
2: Benedict, he absolutely should of the be.
0: church but the way he's able to be so close to you and be so it's it's like sitting there and learning from your grandpa who also happened yeah. to be the smartest guy ever it's just an amazing book it helped me so much to number 1 reaffirm the theology but also to see that theology is loving to see that theology is not a cold hard line in a book theology is the description of god himself theology and is describing god and god is love and it's it's a very unique I guess, interplay between a the love of God and then the, the theology of God that I don't think many other books have gotten, at least for me, that I've read. Uh, they, there's a whole trilogy. There's the early life, you know, there's – but the uh, the first one he released, Jesus of Nazareth, um, just so good. Uh, can't recommend that enough.
1: And if you uh, haven't read Pope Benedict, the 16th – I mean, pick up anything that he's written. Yeah, it's really. just amazing. Yeah.
0: Uh, a couple more quick ones, uh, The Interior cra- Castle, St. Uh, Teresa of Avila, um, Dark Night of the Soul, St. John of the Cross, a mm. beautiful Spanish masterpiece of poetry and, and theology. Um, the Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, beautiful. one of the most influential books of all time. I think I believe at one point is the second most read book besides the Bible. Is that important? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Uniformity with God's Will by uh, St. Alphonsus Liguori another great spiritual master. I would really say anything by St. Alphonsus Liguori yeah. uh, is definitely beneficial to read. Uh, those are a couple honorable mentions, but Brandon, you also put together a list. Um, so it's on your website,
2: and this is a re- this is a mega list. There's how many books? 200, 300 books on here? Something like that, yeah. And I I started with a great list that Father John McCloskey, he's a, a late great priest of Opus Dei, he mm-hmm. put together A Catholic lifetime reading plan, and so I kind of took that list, started with it, and added just a few titles because his list was already so great. Um, But I have I have all the books listed and linked, I think, to Amazon uh, on my website, so maybe we can include that link in the show notes. Absolutely.
0: Now, um, before we get onto the last book, um, I want to make a real quick mention. Number one, uh, for anyone watching who is a Patreon, thank you for your support. We really couldn't do the show without you. It means so much to us. You're in our prayers. Your support allows us to continue to grow. We've recently reached, you know, 100,000 people, you know, who followed us. It's a, it's a really cool thing. Um, so if you want to support the show, you got you can go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash Patreon. A lot of cool gifts, coffee mugs, hoodies, uh, things that we can do. You get access to a weekly call where me and Ryan talk with people in person and we pray together and just discuss episodes. So check that out. Uh, the second thing is... We have partnered with a really great Catholic charitable organization known as Cross Catholic Outreach. Um, Cross Catholic Outreach is a very reputable, very efficient Catholic organization that serves the people in the most need in this world. Ninety five cents of every dollar donated to them goes directly to the person who's being benefited from this. And for Christmas and Advent this year, we've partnered with them on a particular cause that we've adopted. And it's to help poor children, specifically young women in Mozambique, get an education, get um, food, shelter, and some Christian um, education. Uh, Mozambique has an enormous amount of orphans from the AIDS uh, crisis there. Uh, I think it's the second most in the world, and they have the second most, the highest rate of AIDS infection there. And that's created so many orphans. And you have these young girls, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, without parents, without any access to resources. And the cause that we are supporting helps directly give them food, clothes, and security. So if you go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash cross you can help participate with us and what we're doing as our Advent giving this year. Um, again, very reputable, very efficient, but really a necessary thing. This is part of their Christmas program. And look, we all buy hundreds, I don't know, 50, 40, 60 gifts, you know, during Christmas. What's one more small gift? Now your child, he, you know, you might get them a, a video game or something that he'll play for a little, a little while and forget. This kind of charity and this kind of thing can help a young girl for a lifetime and be something that changes her life much more than a, a toy that goes away or a piece of clothing they outgrow. So if you have it in your heart to give one more gift this year, go to catholic com forward slash cross Catholic. There's a link below, and you can help support this. Now, Brandon, let's get back into the list. And this is this is your last uh this is the last one. So let's let's leave off my last the book. Here.
2: And this takes us all the way up to the present day. This book is Catholicism, A Journey to the Heart of the Faith by Bishop Robert Barron. Not just mentioning this book because I work with Bishop Barron. uh, I would do it anyway. In fact, I read this book before I started working at Word on Fire. There's Ryan's copy. Excellent. Love it. If you've seen the Catholicism film series, this book is basically an adapted and expanded version of that. So it's got 10 chapters walking you through all the basics of the faith from God to Christ to Mary to the church to the saints. But what Bishop Barron does better than I think anyone today is he brings in the full, colorful, vivid beauty and splendor of the church from art to the mystics, to scholars, to architecture, to music, to culture. He presents this beautiful tapestry that I think anyone reading this book would become so attracted and drawn to the Catholic thing and want to learn more about it. So I have this book for Catholics. So if you haven't read it, this will be a great single volume overview of your own faith. But also I thought this would be a great book to conclude with because it's probably the one book I would give to somebody who's interested in Catholicism, especially someone who's maybe a little more intellectually inclined, maybe a little artistically inclined. I think if they read this book, Catholicism would shimmer in a whole new light. So mm-hmm. that's why it's my final book, Catholicism, A Journey to the Heart of the Faith by Bishop Barron.
0: Now, Brandon, I don't know if this is an apt comparison, but a lot of people really love Anthony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain was going around the world and experiencing food. He's just eating a meal, but the context that he gives to it and how he sees all the interwoven history, the culture, the people, the real life beauty of a simple dish that he bought off the street in Thailand or something. It's kind of that completeness of experience that I think Bishop Barron gets in the same fashion. You know, you could talk about Catholicism, you could talk about the sacraments, but he's bringing in these cultural references, he's bringing in these soulful references, and then he's also bringing in, you know, theology and fact and history. It's a very rounded um, presentation of the faith that I think I mean, it's obvious that it, it's been so well received because that
2: approach really, really hits people in a unique way. Yeah, it confirms that Catholicism is not an abstraction; it's rooted in concrete, vivid realities, like the Gothic cathedrals, you know, or the masses of Mozart or the sisters of Mother Teresa. These things are are real and vivid and attractive and colorful, and that's what the film series and this book put on display.
0: Well. Brandon, there is another author that I really enjoy reading. In fact, I have, I believe, five of his books. Uh, great author. I've, I've actually met the guy. He's a great guy. Uh, his name is Brandon Vaught. Have you ever read anything by him?
2: <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't put him on this list.
0: Um, certainly not. <laughs> uh, Brandon, I mean, you have written a, a great deal of books. Um, tell us about your life a bit as an author.
2: Yeah, it, it follows basically the same trajectory as my life as a reader. I hated writing growing up. High school hated writing essays. If the teacher said, you got to write three paragraphs, I would have pulled my hair out and, you know, <laughs> poked my eyes. Um, but it was after I became a serious Christian that I took up the pen. I first began writing by sharing my story of conversion from Protestantism, to Catholicism. That got me writing about a lot of issues within the church um, at the time. This is maybe a decade ago. So my first book uh, in 2012 was on the church and new media. So at the time, I was you know, a 24-year-old kid who was blogging and using Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and podcasts. How could the church use these tools more? So I did a whole book on that topic. And then from there, just kept writing about topics that interest me. I have a book on the saints and Catholic social teaching um, i have several books on apologetics uh, i have a book on uh making the case of why people should be catholic and then my most recent book uh this one just came out um, a couple weeks ago is wisdom and wonder which is a edited series of essays on peter Kraft, who we've mentioned a few times here um so this is book number 10 uh, i've got a whole slew 10 of them books. now, but that's congratulations a short story. man that's awesome thanks
0: yeah uh, so uh the return a return is a great book it's for you know helping parents and and grandparents uh, bring their children back into the church. Amazing book. Um, And Brandon, I'll I'll freely admit, you also have another thing. It's your platform called Claritas U. Mm. Claritas U is a very modern take on, I would almost say, a a form of systematic theology. It's a great Mm. course to allow the average person to go in, uh, watch a course on some very uh, hot-button topics and some very contentious topics, how to be able to speak confidently on these issues, where you might be in a conversation, you know, over Thanksgiving dinner, and someone's like talking about abortion or end of life issues, or, you know, the problem of evil, and you have nothing to say. So you put a biscuit in your mouth, right? This really can help train you and form you in a way to where you have good legitimate answers. And Brandon, I'll freely admit, we'll be preparing an episode of the Catholic talk show and we have to bring up a topic. And I want a quick, succinct answer that I know that I can trust and speak well on that people will get. I will log into my Claritas con- um, um account and take a little brief refresher on it. It's something that I rely on. So, Brandon, why don't you tell everyone about the special offer that we put together mm-hmm. for the listeners of our of our podcast here?
2: Yeah, you know, when I was coming on here, you asked if we wanted to put together something special and offer, and I thought, well, it definitely has to have books in it, and it definitely has to tie into Claritas You So here's what we came up with, that for viewers of this episode, uh, we're offering two of my best selling books. Um, this one is titled Why I Am Catholic and You Should Be Too. It makes the case primarily to atheists, agnostics, and former Catholics as to why they should take seriously the Catholic church, why the Catholic church is true, good, and beautiful. So that's book number one. Book number two is what to say and how to say it, how to discuss your Catholic faith with clarity and confidence. And it goes over some of those hot button issues. Ryan just mentioned things like atheism, evil and suffering, abortion, same-sex marriage, transgenderism. If any of those topics make you nervous, anxious, tongue-tied right now, this book will tell you exactly what to say and how to say it and how to answer the most common objections. So these two books for just ten dollars with free shipping. Uh now crazy deal normally man. that's a great like, deal. normally like 20 bucks a book I think is what they retail for, but you can get both of them for 10 bucks free shipping. And to tie it back to Claritas U, you get a free month of a hundred percent access to Claritas U. So I think now we have over 30 video courses in there. All of them are taught by me, all of them on these difficult prickly subjects. We just finished up a course on uh, euthanasia and end of life issues. Um, there's courses in there on contraception, abortion, transgenderism, atheism. Again, not just what the Catholic church teaches. I think all of us know that, You know, all of us know abortion's bad, contraception is bad, but how do you convey that winsomely convincingly charitably to someone who disagrees with you so that's what those courses teach you to do they give you discussion tips and strategies on how to frame these dialogues um so you get all that for 10 bucks um so no brainer that's, i mean i don't know where you're going to get two bucks two books and 30 video courses for 10 bucks anywhere else uh yeah it's a great
0: deal and it's very gracious of you uh if anyone listening if you go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash books b-o-o-k-s you can get this deal right now, and I'm serious when I say this. Brandon is a fantastic author. His yeah. books are, you know, he's he's being very modest, but his books are excellent. Claritas, you is an amazing, amazing resource. Uh, you can learn so much. I mean, if you're going to binge watch, you know, uh, cooking shows or you know people throwing balloons off of a dam on YouTube budget in a little bit of time to watch a couple of these courses. Uh, Watch watch those things
2: while you're watching Claritas U is what Ryan's (laughs) trying to say. (laughs) Right.
1: I (laughs) would say it's
0: about the variety there.
1: Yeah. I would say personally, we've been talking about authors and influence and different things like that. And I I would say your biggest, in my opinion, your biggest influence in the church is precisely, you know, helping people speak about their faith, which is Mm. very difficult um, I grew up in, uh, a Protestant, uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, you were in Tallahassee. I know we know a lot of the same guys, but it was a very Protestant place. And, and I was constantly inundated by people who wanted me to go to their church explaining how the Catholic church was bad. And so one of the things that I think your legacy as an author is, is, is in this particular area uh, and how many people you've helped. So we appreciate mm. um, you coming on the show and also your body of work in those areas.
0: Mm. Thank you. Awesome. So again, a couple of things. If you want to support us, you go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash Patreon. If you want to support these children in Mozambique, go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash Cross Catholic. And if you want to take advantage of this awesome offer, go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash books. Now remember, we're going to have links to this offer to the list that Brandon has recommended and his mega list of all these books. Uh, so make sure you go to catholictalkshow.com, like, share, subscribe right now, and you can go there and get all these links. Uh, take care of this offer. This is a great offer, 10 bucks. I mean, what is was that two cups of coffee these days. I mean, that is some a deal that I really don't think you want to pass up. Uh, Brandon, we well, you always, always great talking with you. Always love having a chance to speak with you. And I really appreciate you coming on here and, and recommending these books
2: to our audience. Uh my treat. It, when you said we want to bring you on to talk about books, I'm like, oh gosh, how long do you, how long do I have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome.
0: Uh so again, check out all those links. Uh everyone, um, like I said earlier, St. John Bosco, only God knows the good that can come from reading one good Catholic book. Go out, take a look at these books, pick one for you and read it. Uh, It's going to help your mind, going to help your soul and help your relationship with God. So everyone, we'll see you next week. And thank you so much.